I think you have to make a living. Yes. <laughs> this is good. Start number one. <laughs> make a living. But hopefully, and love what you're doing. And if you can get both of those together, you know. That's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. And in veterinary medicine, there's lots of ways to be a vet. So if you don't love the way you're being a vet now, change it. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. My guest on today's show is cat vet extraordinaire Dr. Susan Little. Susan received her DVM from Ontario Veterinary College in Guelph and has been in feline practice since 1990, achieving board certification in feline practice in 1997. She is part owner of two feline specialty practices in Ottawa and is a board member slash past president of the American Association of Feline Practitioners. Dr. Little also serves on the board of the International Council for Veterinary Assessment. If you don't know what that is, think NAVLE. They are the dudes that set it and see that you are licensed and fit to practice in North America. Susan is undoubtedly one of the hardest working speakers on the veterinary circuit. Her air mile collection is only outweighed by her risk of deep vein thrombosis, such as the time she spends traveling globally to educate us all. But all of her hard work has paid dividends in the form of huge recognition from her peers, with accolades including Canadian Veterinary Medical Association Small Animal Practitioner Award in 2010, the NEVC Small Animal Speaker of the Year Award in 2013, and the International Society of Feline Medicine slash Hills Pet Nutrition Award for Outstanding Contributions to Feline Medicine in 2013. Finally, it would be rude not to mention the two books Susan has edited and co-authored. First up, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and also August's Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Now, just before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to drop a quick word from our show sponsor, which is the Vetex Graduate Mentoring Community. If you are a practice owner and want to offer your new vets a greater level of support so they grow faster and stay longer with your practice, then jump onto my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash vetx and learn how we are helping graduates across the world thrive in practices just like yours. The class is open for global entry now, so please head there and check it out. Now, this was my first time spending time one-on-one with Susan, and I hope it will not be my last. She was a riot from start to finish, giving generously with both time and knowledge, but what struck me the most was her passion and enthusiasm for both veterinary medicine and life in general. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure to bring you my conversation with the amazing Dr. Susan Little. I feel like this is going to be one of the most challenging guests to manage on the podcast i am sat here with the <laughs> the right honorable <laughs> left honorable the right yeah doctor professor world mentor oh, doctor. or <laughs> doctor yeah. susan little yeah now susan is uh, well i use the word rock star and that sort of made her toes curl a little bit it does a little bit but you know i'll take it you'll take it yeah, you can live okay. with that Okay, awesome. So welcome to the podcast, Susan. Um, We're sat here at Western Veterinary Conference, and you have been a busy bee, Mm. by the sounds of it. Mm. How many lectures and commitments have you got Um, at a conference like this? I have six under my belt, one and a bit to go. One and a bit to go. Yeah. Cool. And you, so you've just come from... Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. As I was going to say, from <laughs> Filming with Hills, where you had to Oh, but that's true too, yes. A, a wig on or... Well, hair? no, but big hair. Big hair. <laughs> big How, hair. <laughs> is that like, a, and I know you're, you're Canadian. Right? I am. So we can, now most of the, the audience of this podcast is actually in the US, so we probably shouldn't say really? too much. But is that an American TV thing where you've got a big hair? I just think like, it's a video thing. Is it thing. a Dallas thing? I think, yeah, oh, pfft. I think it's like a video thing because you, you got to look like bigger yes. than life. Yes. Right. And you yeah. and I share the trait of neither of us being very big. Indeed. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not so dramatic. So it took the poor hair and makeup girl a little while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She had her work cut out for her. But okay. Yeah. And despite the fact neither of us are very big, I feel like this is going to be one of the noisiest podcasts that we've actually done. So welcome to the show, Susan. I've got a lot of questions from you or for you. But the most important, we'll start with the most important. And when I ever get a guest on, I always do a bit of research. So I have oh. my, my stalker team out there and I ask <laughs> people around 
And so the most fundamentally important question I feel like, and we're not going to get any more highbrow than this and more impactful for the audience, but what's it with oysters and Susan Little? Oh, so I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked because so here's the thing. I love oysters, Okay. but I've discovered that not very many people do. And so when I discover the odd person or two that likes oysters, we you go crazy. Yeah. Now we could talk a bit about oysters. Now, I, and this is a this is a past tense thing because I went vegan about two years ago. Mm. So, but I loved oysters. I miss, if I'm honest about my veganism, I miss fish. So where where you got oysters in? in Oyster, so I was from in, where? Well, I was in Australia for yeah. seven and a half years. Yeah, yeah. So we had the Sydney Rock and then the Pacific oysters. Yeah. And they were both Yeah, delicious. I've had them. Yeah. Favorite, what, what do you prefer to put with your oysters? Oh, I'm a purist. Oh, pure, yeah. I'm a purist. I should have known that. I'm just, I slurp them naked. Just boom. Slurp them naked. Yeah. Good boy. I go for a tiny bit of habanero and I'm maybe okay a bit of that. lemon. Especially, yeah, I'm okay with that with some oysters. But, you know, there are some you, you really should just, just go. go for it. And which ones would be your favorite? So I come originally from Nova Scotia. Oh, my. Yes. And, so. I, and I still spend a lot of time there. Most of my family's there. Yep. And we, like around that part of Canada, that coast, we have a lot of great oysters. So they're always my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of oysters, like different kinds of oysters. Like every... This could be a whole podcast on oysters. I've never thought of that as a little <laughs> niche. On that. Yeah. I thought I <laughs> Dr. Susan Little, oysters. world renowned <laughs> oyster eater, feline, feline veterinarian, <laughs> but more importantly, oyster eater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every little like bay or cove has its own oyster variety, and ah. they're different. Oh, no, does that mean world. like, is this the oyster equivalent of? like the savannah which is a big crater mm. so it's really or tasmania which has become mm. isolated so it's mm. own sort of genetic mm-hmm. little ring it's fence exactly so that. everybody's the same it's exactly that that's interesting and they taste different and everything yeah so yes so yeah. you know what this has done i'm now I mean, hungry for oysters i'm gonna oyster. have to have oysters tonight <laughs> <laughs> which in las vegas is not going to be a cheap undertaking. Mm-hmm. i mean nothing's cheap here but no. uh, i'm sure that's going to be a, an expensive undertaking so i apologize to your bank account for that immediately oh it'll be worth it so, well, that's a segue into, oh, we've never done that in the podcast before. We really? straight to culinary delights. Yeah, we could do a whole food thing easy. I yeah. could. I yeah, should, although you're a vegan. I'm going to stop talking because it sort of makes me feel like yeah. I'm not going to eat oyster. Every vegan out there, don't worry. It's not going to yeah. happen, but, yeah. oh, I missed them. So, I hear you. Let's pull it back to, I'm going to have to watch you. I'm going to have to pull you back quite a lot, I suspect. Mm. And that's bad because I'm really bad at left fielding and zinging off as, as the audience. Going down know. rabbit holes. Going down rabbit holes with a feline vet. There <laughs> we go. So... I wanted just to start with, for the audience members who don't know you, take us back in the, the mists of time to mm. when, not pre vet what were your influences and what, like paint a picture of, you know, early childhood, how did you wind up steered through to this profession? Wow. You know, I, I hate that question. <laughs> okay, we can edit. <laughs> and I hate that question because I don't have like you know, an inspirational answer to that. You know how you talk to some I, people? and don't want and inspiration. And, we no, want but real. I, we're, all, we're all a bit authentic in this podcast. Well, this will be authentic because I haven't had time to fake a story. <laughs> if I have time, I'll fake a story. Right, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, or I'll, like, I'll borrow somebody else's fake story. It's really good. <laughs> Seriously, I will do that. You know, though, so, sorry, just a brief rabbit hole. Yep. You know at those meetings, like a committee meeting or a board meeting, and they make you go around the table and tell something about yourself? Okay. Yeah, so this is an icebreaker type Got of thing. It. Yeah, and I'm really bad at that. So I steal stories from other people and I just, you know, so I've been bungee jumping in the Serengeti, you know, the, yeah, yeah. So I steal stories. Anyway, so you, it, so you have to be careful. That is otherwise known as lying. <laughs> it's a white lie. Yeah, it's a white lie. So I have no, okay, so now, no so great answer for you. Sub note here, anything from this point forward that, that Susan says may or may, may, not, may, be or may true, not be true, please don't, you know, sue me for trying any feline medicine yeah. tricks. That, that, right, don't try it at home. Don't lie on the feline medicine. No, no, no. It's just my past. I I about. Yeah. So I actually don't remember a time when I said I want to be a vet. I just was always there. Okay. It was just always there. It was just there. It was either that or an English major. Yeah. Oh. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah. So so tell us about that. So my first. So I have a bachelor of science degree in biology with an English literature minor which, you know, I had to go to the administration and talk them into letting a science person do an English literature minor. So I was really caught for a, a little while. Okay. But really, 
other, and you can't make a living as an English literature person, you know. So it, there was just no choice. I knew I was going to be a vet. Okay. And was it a proc? Did you have pets growing up? No. Like, what was that? No. Did you live near a farm? No. So this is, no, I'm not letting this go because now I'm fascinated. So what, what was the spark? I have no idea. There must Probably. Be some inspiration somewhere. You're going to have to dig deeper than that. Uh, I'll have to make something up. Probably. Maybe it's because, you know, I, so I always liked nature. I grew up in the countryside, not, yep. not really near farm, but I grew up in the countryside, okay. right? And so always enjoyed nature, you know, yep. air quotes nature, but not in a pet owning family, didn't know any veterinarians. So yep. I think it was, it probably truthfully just sort of started with that. Yep. You know, I like animals and nature. Thing. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Right. But I also like science. Yes. And you biology. Write, and biology. You're to animals all And the way I along. really believe that all veterinarians are or should be scientists yeah. at the same time, right? Okay. I tell veterinarians that all the time. Oh, now that's an interesting little side place to go. So I'm going to, because we are science-based We are, but profession. I think a lot of vets forget that they need to wear a science hat at times. So critical thinking, evidence-based okay. medicine. Let's go there. This is interesting. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chuck out a, let's actually... A lot of the things we hear now, so the pain points out in the industry just now, I will circle back to what you said and yep. give you a context for it. But you hear about the dissatisfaction of graduates coming into the profession now. And, you know, we've got our usual, you know, bot bags we like to bear blame, mm. the things we like to blame for that. And one of the, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the myths are that, you know, we're not bringing the right people into the profession. They're too cerebral for general practice. Mm. and they're coming out the other side. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but mm. what I wonder about is whether we're, we're mis-selling what's on the other side oh. on the way into universities. Because what we, we certainly know in the UK from Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons surveys is that I think the number's a little over half now of vets report feeling dissatisfied at their mm. career choice. So it's not just a North American thing? No, it's definitely not. Mm. And I think one of the good things about the UK is... It's like one very densely populated state. So right. the Royal College does a good job of, of looking mm. at those surveys and has a good good data point. Like the National Health Service as well, mm. as it's a really good place to get data on human health care mm. information because it's, it's all aggregated. And so that, that number there is terrifying. The other mm. statistic I was really interested in was that there's a trend, and it's the trend rather than the individual numbers, but the trend was really an increasing number of vets leaving their job within the first 12 weeks. New graduates, again. First 12 weeks? First 12 weeks. Trending up towards sort of maybe 20%. And then it spikes in 2013. I'm sure this is an outlier. Maybe not many people answered the survey, but it spikes up to about 40%. Now, that seems like a really big number. It does. But it, it just shows there's some sort of disconnect happening there. Tie that back to your point about us being scientists. Mm. And some of my concern and my question for you is on that, and you can take this wherever you want to go after this, this is really a classic Dave question, ramble all over the place, is are we, and I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, but are we too sciencey because people are coming out that are highly cerebral, hitting what they're hitting is a client relationship or a team-based relationship thing, and that's where they're struggling. That's the pain point. Or... Is the science, is everything overwhelming for them at present? Like there has to be reasons behind that. So given yeah. your belief there, what are your thoughts on that? And what's your opinion on the state of things as they stand? The, in capital letters, the state of things. I actually, I think it's probably like a lot of complex problems. I think it's probably multifactorial. Right. So I do think you're right. And that we attract a certain type of person to veterinary medicine who is very cerebral and is very science-based and exactly, as you said, you know, bumps up against the fact, oh, Lordy, look at that. They come with people, you yeah. know, the animals come with people. And I think we need to do a much better job at explaining and illustrating to these these people entering veterinary medicine what it looks like on the other end. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But I also see a group of young vets who of course love animals and get into veterinary medicine and maybe are very unrealistic about, so it's not about the science, that's not the issue. It's about how tough it is. It's yep. not an easy job. 
No, it's a tough it's job. It's a hard job. Yeah, it's a hard job. You're gonna get beaten up. Yep. You know, emotionally. Yes. Intellectually. Yep. In this job, and I think they have no idea. Okay. I think they have no idea. So I think there's a group of them that are very driven by the heart and the passion. Yep. And some of them, of course, lack, and maybe it's youth, maybe it's an experience, but lack the tools, okay. you know, that are going to get you through the tough bits. What tools do they need to have? And mm. what was your experience going through that journey, if you will? You operate at the top of your game. You know, you've got successful practices. You lecture. You are the definition of the road warrior, as far as I can tell from your Instagram <laughs> A little too feed. much, yeah, yeah. You know, you speak at the highest level, you know, NAVC Speaker of the Year, all of those things. I do a lot of things. You do a lot of things. Which is good. To a high level. So what have you learned along the way that's helped you to achieve that? Any tools or strategies or tactics that... And, and also, what were the tough points in that? Because I'm sure, like every journey, it's had its ups and downs. So... I was lucky in that within about two years of graduation, I had the opportunity to buy into practice ownership at a really good time to yep. do it. You know, timing is everything. What was a really good time? Why was it a really good time? I think it, it was well before corporate medicine was well established, well before social media trends, you know, so I've been around a little while. Okay. I know I look like I graduated yesterday, but I've just been yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. So it, it was just that sweet spot, you know, when veterinarians were still very well respected Yep. I think we've taken a bit of a, a hit, especially through social media. So it was that sweet spot where things were still kind of rosy. I had the opportunity to buy into practice management, mentored by a really great business partner. And it gave me, I guess, you know what? I'm like a cat. Cats are control freaks. <laughs> they need to control their world because yep. that's what makes them feel safe. Yes. And I'm, I realized I'm very much like a cat. I need control over my destiny. So getting into practice ownership early was a steep learning curve. Yep. It was hard work, right? I remember walking into the bank as a, you, you know, this young woman with no money to my name. I didn't own anything except like an elderly car, right? And asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a practice. Yep. And it takes a little bit of chutzpah to do that. You know, oh, yeah. fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Talk me through that experience. Like, what were you thinking? Did you suffer imposter syndrome? <laughs> Was that even a thing then? Or is that a thing now? <laughs> yeah, it's a thing now. Yeah. Oh, and uh, oh, to this day, I am fully capable of standing up in front of an audience and going, I have no right. Like the voice in your head goes, I have no right to be here. Right. And then I've just learned to bring the other voice in that says, you know, as much or more than most of the people in the audience have fun. Combined. So part of, yeah, part of it is just like learning to have that counteractive, that second voice so inside a, your it's head. It's a different story that you can play when the first story totally. goes out there. Totally. So tell me about the early years of your practice. Well, we will very much get on to the topic of feline medicine. I would be shot, hung, <laughs> drawn, quartered for not doing so. But tell me through the early process of, you know, like how did you grow that business? How did you grow and, and develop as a leader? Because two years out of college, mm. you know, leaders, when you're young and you don't know anything, leaders tend to be the people who shout the loudest, the extroverts, the people with the big voices. Yep. And, yep. and that was my experience. And yep. then my second experience was my big voice was actually didn't know Jack. Yep. And so I learned that and, early. Yep. <laughs> so tell me through your your development, your emergence as a leader? It's all down to one thing. It's because I'm I'm restless and I have a short attention span. Right? Oh, we share that. Yeah. I'm restless. And I have a, so I get bored easily. Okay. And so it just drives me like to do something else, to do something else, to do something else. How'd that manifest itself? What oh, behaviors were you? You know, so I think after first 10 years or so in practice, when I, I felt I'd landed on firm enough ground, you know, more days I felt confident than not confident. Yes. Because mm, yep. for a while, yep. right, Ziffy. And then I start, then I, you start to look around and you start to go, okay, like, so what else, you know, okay. like, what else can I do? What else? Yeah. What a great question. What else can I do? And I was very lucky in that around that time, a person who's now a very uh, good veterinary colleague of mine offered me the chance to talk about feline medicine at a really little meeting at the University of Florida, specifically on reproduction, because like nobody talks about feline reproduction, right? And she asked me to do it. So I, it was my first ever time. Were you speaking. an eminent authority at this point in feline oh, good reproduction? Lord, no. no, good lord. Well, I mean, it's easy to be one because like nobody talks about feline reproduction, yeah, right, right? Right. Yeah, and so it's easy. Just yeah. one step ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that started it, and then somebody else asked me to do a talk, and then you know, you know how it goes. 
And I think there's a sweet spot in there where you either learn to that you like it or you are terrified to death and you go home and you say, I am never doing that again, <laughs> right? So I made it through the heebie-jeebies okay. and then realized I'm a bit of a ham Yep. and I'm fine standing up talking to people. And you're happy doing that. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any processes or things you do before you speak or present mm. that help you into the moment, as it were? I'm diligent about knowing my subject well. So that's the thing I hate the most. So preparation. Prep. Not knowing my subject well is like yep. my big fear, right? Yep. So I do like to be current and I do like to know my subject well. Yep. And other than that, I'm pretty zen about things. So I've learned, and you know, if you travel a lot, so here's a travel tip, just be zen. Just be said, because most of it's out of your control. Yes. Right. So there's a point at which you got to go, okay, it's going to be what it's going to be. Yep. Let's just go with it. Yep. Learn to stop trying to micromanage. Right. You're so trying, trying to micromanage an airline. Yeah. It's not going to people do. People do like they're shouting at the, the people at the gate because, you know, they missed their flight or whatever. You just got to let it go. You know, the other tip I've got on airlines, which has served me very, very well. It's a highly proceduralized environment. Oh my gosh. I, okay. I have something to say. Keep going. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I was on a flight from a conference in the West Coast of America in San Diego. Hmm. And I had a, sh a short connection flight up to LA before I flew back to Sydney. And it got delayed. The flight got delayed and delayed. And then you could see where it was going. It's going to get canceled. The next one wouldn't make the connection. I really needed to get back to my practice in Australia. So... Then there was a group of people and we said, okay, let's just hire a bus and see if we can get a bus up to make the connection. And actually the airline then, we just hassled them and they said, okay, we'll pay for the bus and put you on the road. So the bus is driving and it looks like we're not going to make it. So I'm on Twitter and I'm like, hey, Quotas, you know, we're checked in, but we're on the bus. We're, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And then there's other social media influencers are going, come on, Quantas, let them on the plane. And like famous Australians also. Oh. <laughs> so that was funny. And Quantas are like, what is going on here? Who is this guy? And right, exactly. Absolutely nobody on a coach ride going to LA, LAX. So we get to LAX and there is two flight sites. There's one to Sydney, one to Melbourne. And the desk next to me, and I have, I have been fortunate enough to get an upgrade into a nice seat. And at the desk next to me, someone is losing it with them. Absolutely, yeah. because we're, we're five minutes after the check-ins close. Yeah. So all the stands are gone, yeah. but the staff are still there. Now, a good friend and mentor of mine, super impressive lady called Nancy Schlesinger, gave me this tip. And she is like an NLP voodoo Jedi master. And she said, look, anytime you're in a procedural situation, you say, what's the procedure for blank? Because mm. there's always a mm. procedure for it. So I'm like, okay, this is, if ever there was a time to use it, now's the time. I said, so I'm late, really sorry we're late. Here's what happened. What's the procedure to get on the, the flight? And then, and he went, oh, take it, take it, take on his keyboard. I went, oh, no, that's fine. We'll do this, do this. Got on the flight. And then he looked at my passport, of course, and, and what I didn't know was my travel visa. I had a permanent residency visa for Australia at the time. The travel component had expired. So he said, have you got a visa for Australia? So, and I'm like, yes, it's in the passport. He went, that's expired. expired. I went, oh, what's the procedure <laughs> for getting into Australia when your travel component's expired? <laughs> so, so then he went, tuck -tuck 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 -tuck. he went, oh, well, we'll put you on a flight, but you have to have an interview at customs the other end. I'm like, oh, thank God. Now, the lady at the next desk over who was losing it, they didn't put her on a flight. Yeah. So right. what's your story? Well, it's not nearly as good as that. Oh, no. No. no, but I love that. So I, I've just learned something. What's the procedure for? Yeah. I love that. And procedural people will always have a procedure. Yeah, but if you yell at them, they're, they're not going. So, so what you made me think of with the procedure thing, because airlines are quite regimented. Yes. And I was thinking more on the plane itself and the pilots and their, their system for pre-flight checks. Yes. Right? Yes. And so one of the talks that I do quite often is about safety of anesthesia, and I use the the airline example, yes. right? Yes. So pre-flight checks. So I use that analogy um, yeah. in my talks and I, you know, I see you think of it like you're, this is a pre-flight check that you're doing, right? Yep. Why don't we have more checklists in veterinary medicine? Why not? Dr. Sheila Robertson, who was on yesterday. Who I love. Amazing, amazing lady. I'll say yesterday, this podcast will go out a month after her one. So last month, and that's, that's one of the places we went. Checklists. And, it, and you could, I could tell talking to her that she was also a fan of Atul Gawande. Yeah, I know. Amazing I know. Author. The Checklist Manifesto. Fantastic. And Complications, one of my favorite oh, books of all time. 
that's it. Okay, so why don't we have more checklists in veterinary medicine? You know, I don't understand that because, and, and actually, if you do read Atul Gawande, you'll realize that checklists are actually fairly recent in human medicine. You know, yeah. they haven't been used as long as you and I might assume. You know, you would think, wow, haven't they always done that? Yep. No. No. So it's later in, in human medicine than you would have thought. Why have we been so late adopting it? Veterinarians are very individual. That sounds like a nice way of saying something different. No, no. I think veterinarians are just very individual. Where it's hard okay. to herd us into a, a procedures, maybe. So right? we, are, we are like cats. We are a little bit like cats, very hard to herd. Okay. And just like one of the stories that Atul Gawande talks about, you have to prove the value of it. You know, he talks about trying to introduce a checklist in a surgical ward, yep. right? And everybody, you know, it takes too much time. They freak out, back. right? Because you've just like changed the pathway of their day. Yes. You know, and it, you would think, well, how hard is that? It's a piece of paper, or, you know, no. So so I think it's like just a lot of that stuff, right? Yes. But we are beginning, and I'm, I know Sheila would have talked about this, we're beginning to get some data in veterinary medicine that says, hey, checklists are a good thing, right? So I'm I'm a checklist manifesto person. What are, in, in your practice, you have two Two, two feline practices. only. And so tell me, what are the most important checklists or the ones that have been most impactful? Yeah, How around anesthesia, come? for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So having a, a much more complete, so we always had sort of an anesthesia log, but we've expanded it more into a, a checklist, yeah. right? So you just, you verify more things. And a lot of it sounds silly. It's like, is this the right patient? Yes. Is this the right surgery? Now, once you're a vet long enough, if it hasn't happened to you, it's happened to a buddy of yours. Has it not? Mm? Uh, why my worst mm? ever complaint I had to deal with was a you know, a wrong animal operation yep. which occurred and it was a breach protocol. Yep. There that, you go. Led, but this analogy like life is you know, Pandora's box is locked by a set of tumblers. <laughs> and Anytime you don't, and you have to be aware of what the tumblers are because there's the element of chance and everything. And you leave stuff to chance, the tumblers are going to line up and the Pandora's box is going to spring open. And every complaint I've ever had to deal with, there's been a critical control point where we should have known. And there was a tumbler we could have controlled yeah. and been monitoring that, but yeah. the tumbler to stop. And that's often the case, right? And so you do need to do a bit of a postmortem on that whole thing yeah. and learn from it. Have you had any failures of, not necessarily protocol, but times where there wasn't a protocol uh, mm. that you've then had to dissect that? Because that can be quite a toxic thing to do in practice. What, in your experience, is the best way of doing that? So it's about, you know, it's not a horrible experience where everyone mm. goes home and cries and feels bad. Yeah, yeah. And like never comes back to work again or you get like evil eye for weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very true. Yeah. I think you have to involve everybody from the ground up. So I don't think that can be a top down thing. I yep. think that has to be like right at the bottom, you yep. know, the level so that you and anybody who's going to be involved in whatever the procedure or the change or the protocol you're going to make is. And even though you might go into this thinking, okay, I know how this should be. You know, I've learned my lesson. This is what we should do. You have to go into it like, I don't know. You have to go into it saying, yeah. we had this problem. Help me fix it. Yeah. Help me fix it. And whenever I've gone into a problem like that, even though I went into it in my head going like, I know where this is going to go. Yeah. I was often wrong. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And often better ideas than mine or things I hadn't thought of yes. come out of that group dynamic. So you just have to start at grassroots and make it a team thing to fix it. Is there a favorite question you have that you go to, to try and elicit information in a different way? What would you like to do? Okay. Yeah. What do you want to do? What would you like to do? Okay. Yeah. Just right. open it up. What would you like to do about this? Okay. So the problem's there and then you go, okay, what do you want to do? What, do you, what, do you, what would you like to do? Okay. You know, if it's in your power, what would you do? How many staff do you have working for you? Oh, gosh. I, you know, people ask such hard questions. I never know the answer to this. <laughs> I'm horrible. It's like in a lecture, people will say, and what's the dose of that drug? And I'll go like, wait a minute, where's my phone? I have an app for that. I, I'm horrible. I'm I'm a bad veterinarian. There's no drug doses in my head. So we have two small cat clinics. Yep. And we have six veterinarians plus two partners. Yes. So three at one, three at the other, and then two partners. And then, I don't know, probably seven to 10 support staff between, yep. you know, full and part-time at each, at each practice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're not big practices. No. And how much time do you spend clinically active compared Ooh. to Road Warrior? Yeah. These days, I'm not in the clinic nearly as much as I would like to be. You know, it will grab a hold of you. Eh? This whole thing, like, so once you start to enjoy 
coming to these things and like yep. doing what we're doing. Yes. It, it will take over your life. Yes. You know, and, and before he's smiling, you're smiling, right? Cause like, you know, so, and before, you know, all of a sudden you're going like, wait a minute, <laughs> what, what's happened? I haven't been in the clinic in like a month. Right. Yeah. So yes, that's one of my, one of my goals this year is to kind of read balance things a little bit, right? right? But you have to do that. I think you have to stop if you have that sort of multifaceted busy life. Even if you don't do what you and I do, which is a bunch of different things, I think you just need to stop and audit every now and then and say, you know, where am I? Is this where I want to be? What do I do? And how often you do that? And what, what does that process oh, look like I do it like every day. You, but you do it every day? <laughs> wake up I and do, go, what am I, I doing like, here? Well, first it's like, what city is this? And, you know, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that's what you are definitely on the road. A lot. A little much. Yeah. Yeah, a little much. Tell me through, that's a really interesting thing then. Hmm. So the life audit. Yeah. What's your process there? This is fascinating <sighs> to me because I moved back from Australia to the UK 18 months ago and officially... There's a big decided, change. Yeah, I'm going to retire as a vet at this point. Big call. That's huge. Huge call. And now focus on management, leadership, yeah. developing and cheerleading in the profession. Yeah. And so that can lead to a certain amount of chaos entering your life as opportunities Any come transition. by. And mm. talk me through your audit process and how you, how does, because you do a lot of things as well. I do. But what so, I keep doing is I keep asking myself, is this what I want to do? Okay. And, and do you have criteria? Like, mm. how do you stay sane? And do you have criteria for assessing? Oh, nobody said I was sane, really. Yeah. <laughs> you get one as podcast. So it's, just, there's, there is, I've noticed amongst the guests, there is, there is a, there's a thread. <laughs> There's a, Where all these like yeah, you know, kind of Mia Carey people. used to use a, a phrase of me. She said, "What's the what's the red <laughs> string that ties it all together? No, the red thread." I love her, and um, she was her. a great guest. And uh, she is. And yeah. I was like, what, what's a red thread? And I'm like, yeah, what's a red thread that ties everyone that comes to this podcast together? It's a little bit crazy. A little bit crazy. Yeah. 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 It's wonderful. So, so I don't know that I keep saying, but I do. I, and I don't, it's not something you can have a schedule for, at least not for me. But probably about once a year, I'll find myself stopping and saying, is this what I love to do? So you hear... Can, can I pull you back even yeah, a sentence there? Yeah, yeah. How did you work out what you love to do? Oh, because it changes. It changes. Okay. So through a long career... Yes. Especially veterinary medicine, which has... There's a lot of rooms in the house of veterinary medicine, to use a horrible analogy, right? Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to be a veterinarian. Yes. That's a good thing. Yes. And actually, that's something that I think a lot of young vets need to know mm -hmm. because they think there's one way to be a veterinarian. You're yes. going to be in clinical practice. There are lots of ways to be a veterinarian. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, and like many of those young people that are coming into our profession might be better suited and happier if they're not a, in clinical practice. Yes. Yeah, so there's lots absolutely. of ways to be a vet. So I think you have to make a living. Yes. This is good. Start number one. <laughs> Make a living. But hopefully, and love what you're doing. And if you can get both of those together, you that's know. That's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. And in veterinary medicine, there's lots of ways to be a vet. So if you don't love the way you're being a vet now, change it. Work towards changing it. So that's what drove me out of pure clinical practice. Yep. And once I discovered that I like teaching. It's really what I do. Mm -hmm. huh? yep. Once I discovered that, then I realized, wow, I really like that. Yeah. But, you know, I don't always like being on the road. I don't always, you know, like doing whatever types of projects. So, you know, periodically I'll find myself saying, you know, like this last few months, it's not felt so great. Why not? Right. What have I been doing that I don't like? Yes. And then you just have to have the, I guess, the strength of character to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's the, hmm. it's the saying no. Saying no. Have you got any favorite ways to say no? Is the hardest thing. Yeah. Saying no. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to move away from and the white lie of like, oh, I'm busy that weekend. Right, right. <laughs> Which is easy, but I'd rather be more yep. truthful. Yeah. Right. Especially if it's something in, so I can think of some examples in veterinary medicine where I say no, because I think it's just like not the right thing to do or you're being taken advantage of. Right. That happens, yes. you know, corporate, whatever, entities, organizations, whatever. Yep. They might not necessarily like come to you or I with the intent, we're going to take advantage of them, you know. Of course. But they, whatever their game plan is that they're offering, when you look at it, you go like, 
man, that's taking advantage of me. You know, yeah. like if I'm going to be away from my practice for three days, I'm going to lose money doing what you want me to Absolutely. do. You know what I mean? Oh, I do. Yeah. Yes. So I think it's very hard in that scenario to stand up and say, wait a minute, you know, this is not right. And, and here's why it's not right. So in the last about year and a half, I'm getting much better at just being honest and saying, you know what, here's what you're asking me to do. Yeah. And here's literally the cost, whether it's time cost or yes. monetary cost. Yes. Right. And so thank you very much, but that doesn't do it for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard. And has that led to any consequences, good or bad in life for you? I think it's been good in that at least it's 18 months. So ask me in a little while, you okay. know, right. It's, it, but you just invited yourself back on for <laughs> a round months. two. Yeah. So I, I think it's been, which I will hold you to. <laughs> I think it's been good because it has empowered me to learn how to say no. Yes. And that I don't find my, so the worst thing, I, the thing I hate is finding myself like somewhere or in the middle of something or some meeting, you know, and you sit there and all of a sudden you go, why am I here? <laughs> are we done yet? Can I go home? Right. And then you start, and here's the deadly point. It's when I start going on my phone or computer and checking the airline schedules to see if I can get an earlier flight. That's your tell. That's the, that's your tell. Yeah. So if I can avoid that, it's good. And it means probably I'll be, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a great person to have. Nobody's a great contributor. If you're unhappy, you have to be happy. Definitely. Okay. So let's change direction a little bit. I'm still going to stay on your career line for a minute, but are there any, what have been the big pivotal moments in your career that really shaped where you've taken things? Getting the chance to become a practice owner. Huge. Yep. Huge. Making the decision to learn to become a speaker, which I'm learning to this day, right? That's a lifelong learning thing. Yep. And then being given the chance to do a textbook because five other people said no. Uh, I'm very grateful all those other people said no. And they're like, okay, well, she's the last one left. Let's go ask her. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's getting thin at the bottom there, but hey, let's try her. Let's, and, and you didn't say, and you hadn't learned you're saying no at that point. Well, actually I was very intrigued. Okay. And so, so circling back to being, to loving English literature. So I yes. love reading. I love editing, like yes. anything to do with the word. You know, I love, so the, and, and so here's the other um, great part about working on textbooks. Nobody, well, shouldn't say nobody. There are a few brilliant people that do a textbook themselves, but usually it's a group effort. So my job is to herd the cats. Yes. Right. You know, like 65 cats, 85 cats, whatever it is. But I learn so much. It's a learning opportunity. Yes. That's the secret of why I do that stuff. Plus I get to edit. So you pulled a book together with co-contributors and had yeah. to edit all of their... Yeah, yeah, like 60, 80 co-contributors. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. you got to hurt them. And vets Den make, mother. Vets make great copy editors because we're such problem solvers and detail focused as well. Yeah, very often true. I, I am. I th- at least I think I am. So I think that's why that works. Yeah, it drives me crazy because my business partner in London always edits my stuff. She reads my stuff every blog I publish. And I, I put it through a great program called Grammarly that I use. Yes. And it just goes through and finds You're all one the, of those people. Yeah. See, <laughs> I'm not the detail problem solver guy. <laughs> and so I, I use editors and, and I'll go through and I'll publish a blog. And also I'm not, I don't have the perfectionist problem either as anybody who's ever read or done any of my stuff knows. But I will, I will get something. I think it's always important to get something done and to get it out yeah. there and then iterate. Well, we need all kinds of those people. Right. Yeah. So let me, let me tell you a grammar story. Yes, go. Okay. I'm, so, I'm, a, I'm a word geek as well. I do <laughs> like words. Oh, so and actually you, you might appreciate the story. So I serve on one of the boards I serve on is um, called the International Council for Veterinary Assessments. They yes. used to be called National Board of Veterinary Medical Examiners. Yes. This is the group that puts the NAVLI exam together, the licensing exam for North yes. American vets. Anyway, so we recently had a board meeting and uh, we were putting together a strategic plan. And we were literally like editing the document, you know, how that works. So they put the document up on the screen and everybody's like editing as Okay, yep. I'm an Oxford comma person. Okay. Does that mean anything to you? Explain. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you're already like looking a little uncomfortable. No, no, so. no, no. It's good. It's good. My, if my English teachers were listening, you know, I've, I've, I've published two books and my English teachers would just be aghast that, that anyone gave me a keyboard. <laughs> so I love the Oxford comma. And so okay. that means if you have a group of things, like you say, I had fruit, nuts, and yogurt for breakfast this morning. You put a comma after each of those things. Including the 
and yeah that well, drives me crackers so so and if you don't use the Oxford comma, what mm. happens is the last two things. So let's say it's like, you know, fruit and yogurt, they're linked together. So yeah. an Oxford comma would be fruit, comma, and yogurt. Yes. Without it, it's fruit and yogurt. Right. Now that's, that's two different things. Now we're going to geek out a little bit in this area because that's how Grammarly tries to connect me. And I'm like, oh, so it, so it makes sense. So it I, so sense. I raise my hand and yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry, but we need an Oxford comma there. And like, and so that was my, you know, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and so the rest of the board is looking like, what's an, what's Oxford? an Oxford comma? <laughs> like the exact same look I just gave you. I'm like, I'm like, oh, right, uh, I shouldn't have said that. So I explain what the Oxford comma is. And the facilitator um, says, you know, she's right because it can change the meaning of the sentence. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so this happens, we put in the Oxford comma. Okay. Yep. I take some gentle ribbing at happy hour from my board members. A month later, yes. we have another meeting. Yes. And right before the meeting, two of the board members email me this news story about how a whole lawsuit revolved around not having an, an Oxford, Oxford comma. comma in the contract. And I was vindicated. I Totally vindicated. I am married to an absolute punctuation. There you go. Not nerd, Nazi. Yeah, okay. She's okay. I get it. Which get must it. be very painful for her <laughs> ever having to read anything that I write. Well, this is the life of an editor. Yes. Right. So it. this is what I do. So if you think what I do is glamorous, remember I spend a lot of time hunched over a keyboard inserting Oxford commas. Oxford commas. <laughs> That's what you do in all those flights. Right. Around the I world, insert right. Oxford commas. <laughs> The life of an editor. The life of an editor. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember the question in this area now. We've just <laughs> Those are the best of... interviews when you have no idea where we're going. No, I, that's, well, that's every interview. <laughs> um, okay, so Dr. Susan Little, Feline Medicine Authority. We suppose we should think t- talk about cats a little We should. Bit. So let's start with this one. What are the most important things or misunderstandings or ways that we are failing cats at present. Ooh. Thinking back to the Bear Brachy study from 2011 yeah. showing cat owners or cats owners are not visiting our veterinary practices. Yeah. That's market feedback. Oh, that was great market feedback. Really good study. Yeah. Thank you, John Volk. And yeah. Co. So tell us more about how are we failing? Have we improved since then? What's happening out there in the cat world? So I think it was quite a revelation, that study, and then some a few other nonsense, quite a revelation to us what is going on in the mind of well-intentioned cat owners who don't bring their cat into the veterinary clinic. Yeah. And we uncovered, you know, a lot of reasons. So again, there's not like one reason, right? Right. There's a variety of reasons. And some of them I think were quite surprising to the profession. Yes. You know, things like Oh, my cat looks fine. I don't need to bring them in. You know, obviously the cat hates the percentage of people who said not their cat dislikes the veterinarian, their cat hates. They use the H word, right? Yeah. I think was higher than any of us thought. And cats do fear really differently to dogs. They absolutely do. And they can be hard to know that they're fearful. Yeah. But when they go home, the owner sees the change in behavior from the stress and the fear at home. And then the owner. So you might think, I remember this happening to me. Some cats, when they're very fearful, when they're very stressed, just freeze. Yep. And so, you know, you and I have examined, I'm sure, many a cat that just kind of sat there on the table and froze. Yeah, and the owners think you're yeah. supposedly wonderful because the cat yeah. suddenly behaves cat's just for like you. It's terrifying. Frozen, right? And I used to think, okay, well, this is easy. That's great. Okay. But the cat goes home and he's like, he hides for like three days and he won't eat. He's freaked out, yep. right? And then the owner goes, I'm not doing that again. Yes. And I'm not doing that again, yes. right? So it taught us a lot of things. It taught us... What do we need to do to ameliorate fear? What does fear look like? It taught yep. us to call owners after a visit and say, everything okay? Okay. So let's take the, each of those in turn then. You're interviewing yourself now. That's great. So what do we need to do to, what does fear look like and what do we need to do to ameliorate it? Uh, so I think it's been really... cats are like, I would never play poker with a cat. I wouldn't either. Ooh. No, I wouldn't either. They're a whole other, they're a whole other creature. Mm. I think these programs like... In North America, we have cat-friendly practice program. In UK and Europe, you have cat-friendly clinic program, very yes. allied programs. Yes. I think they were a giant leap forward. And we've yep. got the fear-free movement as well, yes. a group here um, in the US. I think they were a giant step forward just in educating. Did you get education about stress and fear in your patients in school? No, we had, and I will be very honest about this, we had Mary 
Duke, I want to say Johnson or oh, mm. I'm blanking. She was a, a fantastic lady. And I'm really, I'm digging backwards uh, or digging deep into because it was like 20 years ago. And we got lectures actually about 25 years ago in our first year in the animal husbandry class. Yeah. And she was a big feline advocate. But fear in animals at that point really wasn't thought of as being that big of a deal. Absolutely. Animals would go to the vets and and be scared and that was just accepted. It that's was the accepted. way it was. And it wasn't even a question on people's lips. It was just like, yeah, that's normal. Yeah. So, you know, and speaking to Sheila in the last podcast, you know, saying like, she really, she said, you know, it can be normal for some cats to sit at home and having a resting heart rate of 60 beats a minute. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I remember Dr. Chris Little in Glasgow, we had grand rounds on a Friday afternoon and, and any of the interesting cases came into the hospital, you might get a tap on the shoulder. Nobody wanted a tap on the shoulder because it meant you'd had to work harder on the Wednesday, Thursday ah. to pre- prepare your case and present to the whole faculty on the, the Friday. So I got the tap on the shoulder and, and it was a diaphragmatic hernia cat. Yeah. And it was a traumatic injury. Mm-hmm. And so... And anyone could ask you any question. And I remember putting up the heart rate of 140 and I scooted over it as normal. <laughs> and actually what I'd done in coming back to my copy editing issue, I, that really wasn't 140. It was, what, it was just badly written on the slide, <laughs> my handwriting as well. So the reason to use Grammarly. And so and Chris Little tore me a proverbial uh-oh, new backside because he said, they're not small I'm dogs dark. and 140 is not normal. And then, and of course, this animal was injured, so yes. it should have been a faster heart rate. But then I heard Sheila talking about heart rate being sixty, and I'm like, oh my yeah. god! Yeah. Like, that's, like there's just so much we don't know about these creatures. Yeah. There is because we we never, as veterinarians, we actually don't get a lot of experience with normal. Mm. Even now, like this happens in speaking of reproduction and neonatology, yep. like normal little puppies, normal little kittens. Yes. One of the things that I learned as a practice owner was it's hugely valuable for me to hire a vet who has a cat at home. Hugely valuable. The best ever training I ever did as a veterinarian, bar none, was getting a rescue kitten who mm. was badly beat up and looked super cute when he was in the cage. Like the nurses would put a little ping pong ball up the front of the cage. Bless, it was a junior nurse and he had a fractured uh. left arm. And the other thing I learned from Sheila was that cats are left and right-handed. Yep. I was like, who knew that? Yep. Anyway, so he was a male cat in his left arm and he tried to bat it with his broken <laughs> arm, which just t- tugged the yeah. heartstrings. Yeah. So of course that cat was coming home. Yeah. He was pretty badly tempered and I grew up with dogs. So I treated cats very much like a small dog. You yes. bend down and go, here, could you, could you, whap. And <laughs> lacerations everywhere. And I remember going away and, and we were all going to a year club holiday. And my biggest fear was I was going to get mauled by a cat and just have, you know, go to, go to these wonderful nightclubs yeah, and, and go to the beach, just yeah. lacerated right. like I'm some sort of murderer. <laughs> and then I got that cat. And within six weeks, he had beaten me into enough shape. That I never got bit by or scratched See? by another cat again. You have to live with them in like a normal environment, a yep. normal way. Yes. Otherwise, as a veterinarian, it's just as important to know what normal is as to know what abnormal is. You can't know abnormal really until you know normal. So living with a cat is a huge benefit, a huge benefit. All right. So here's the question then. How do we in general practice how do we get to be better veterinarians for our cats? What are the, the big tips that we should really all be building into our practices? I think we always need to evaluate our clinic procedures, really everything we do from the cat's viewpoint. Yeah. Look at things from the cat's viewpoint. So this right? is a little bit Temple Grandin sort of Yeah, cats, right? it absolutely is. You know, one of the things that was a real game changer for me was a video that Sheila Robertson yes. did. Yes. The video, uh, what it looks like from the cat's point of view. So it's a cat in a carrier going into the University of Florida at Gainesville. Yes. Yeah. And so like the video is shot from the point of view, like you're in the carrier. Right. Right. And so like getting stuffed into the carrier, getting put in the car, you know, the car ride. She did a really great job of this video. And it just, and I went, wow, yeah. like that's what we need to Empathy see. Empathy exercise with the oh, cat. Oh, totally. The, you know, I remember thinking, wow, when you're in a carrier, you see a lot of people's feet and like not much else. You know, you see like a lot of like lower legs of people. And if you're a cat, being able to have surveil your environment makes you feel safer. And now all of a sudden, all you can see is like feet. Yeah. It was just, that was a revelation for me. Okay. 
what do you do in your clinics to minimize the stress, improve the handling? Having no cat? dogs is really helpful. That's the, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges is the dog owner in yeah. the weight room. And he says, yeah. no, he's fine with cats. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's yeah. like, yeah, sure. Yeah. What about the cat? Yeah, they, yeah, the exactly. the cat is just totally freaked out. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been doing a lot in the last year or two is um, clinic audits. So I'll go into, so clinics, you know, I, I don't just walk off the street and do this. Clinics invite me in. To walk in and like, that would be terrifying. Wouldn't it's it like, really? Oh, she's just walked in the door. Who is that woman? Little cat that just <laughs> yeah, walked in her front in door. door. Uh oh, what's happening? <laughs> so I'll I'll do like a little audit, and my goal at the end. So I'll spend an hour or two there, and my goal at the end is to give them three things that don't cost any money that they can do today to make life better for cats in their okay. practice. Okay, what are the common three things? Put a, a cardboard box in the cat's cage. Okay, so they have a place to hide. Yep. Right. Put something in their waiting area to get cats up off of the floor. Yep. Not just off of the floor, but above dog level. Yes. So they're above dog level. It yes. might be a windowsill. It, you know, it might be a, a bench. It might be a table. Whatever it is. Yep. Right. Usually, there's just like some piece of furniture they just have to move. Yes. Right, and get cats up off of the floor. Yep. Right, and then think of the reception desk as a danger zone. Yeah. The right. reception area, because everybody walks up to that reception desk. You know, dog and cat owner alike, and nobody's paying attention to the animals. Everybody's like talking to the reception staff, yep. right? Yes. And that's where like stuff happens. Is it worth just getting the cats? Because it seems like the re- the reception area is. The worst possible it place. Is. And just get them straight in. Moving an exam them right room. into an exam room. So if you have an empty exam room, sometimes even just having the owner and the cat wait in the car, you know. So I know some vets that have what they call like concierge service, right? Yes. So you'll wait in your car, and then we'll a staff member will come out and help you, like bring the cat in and whatever. Yep. So they're just waiting away. So you know, I often hear people say, "Well, I can't divide my waiting room. Yep. You know, I I can't like reconstruct my hospital now and divide my waiting room." Yeah. Well, no, you don't have to. You, you can a use waiting room outside. In yeah. The car. Yeah. That's a really interesting insight. I never mm. thought about that. Well, I didn't make it up, sadly. That's okay. Well, yeah. you, you see, you, you could have gone with a white lie there. I could have, but you know. None the wiser. No, I'd be discovered. <laughs> okay, so avoid the reception desk. Yes. Um, what, what else? Think about that as a danger zone. Get what, cats up off the floor. What about in the exam room? In terms of getting, uh, you know, the physical exam, the clinical exam, a lot of my work and my research has been with doctors in the exam room and helping them with a structure, a process to maximize their chances of following the right clinical pathway based on what they they do in the exam room. What can we do better or differently to improve the quality of the information we derive from that exam room process in feline medicine? I think for cats, you have to learn to compromise. So if you've Really? So if you, you have learned, because here's being all about processes again, right? Yep. So if you've learned a way to do a physical exam, a way to do your medical records, so that you don't forget things, you don't yes. leave things out, you have to adjust to the cat. Yep. So it's become very popular for veterinarians to have an assistant in the exam room with them, you know, yep. whether it's a vet nurse or an assistant. Yes. And I think generally for cats, that's a bad thing. Right. The less people Too in the room... People the better. So I am not a fan for cats of the system where the vet nurse goes in first, you know, like maybe weighs the animal, takes the medical history, does the the TPR, all of this. And then the vet comes in and like does. So every time a person enters the room, that cat's, you know, stress clock goes up again and you're starting from zero again to acclimatize. So that's a hard part because especially a lot of corporate practices, right? They want things to be done the same way all the time. Yes. And I don't think you can treat dog exams and cat exams the same way. I think you need two different systems. Okay. And in terms of the handling of the animal? Less is more. Okay. Yeah. Less is more. What would a typical examination look like with Dr. Susan Little? So we use lots of towels. Oh gosh. We've got tons of towels. And a, a colleague of mine you know, one of the reasons I love coming to conferences like, like this is that you learn things all the time, right? Absolutely. So a colleague of mine took that to the next level and she makes sure the towels are warm. Hmm. So so she'll examine cats when they're kind of enveloped in a warm towel. Who yeah. would not feel happier in a warm towel? Absolutely. I would be happier in a warm towel, <laughs> you know? So you, you learn you learn these things. I will, I'm going to huh? make warm towels available for future podcast warm guests. Warm towels. <laughs> It would be a nice little perk. It, it really would be. I've only given you water. Yeah, I got a bottle of water. I had to bring my own coffee. I, you, uh, uh. <laughs> so a warm towel, welcoming, very welcoming. <laughs> you, it's in my defense, you already had the coffee, so there's no point in buying you another one. Well, I come prepared. I've, I've got your great view. Yeah, nice bottle of expensive. A great view of a Fiji construction site. Overpriced and a, yeah, water. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> and yeah. a comfy so, seat. Think warm Such towels. Such a diva. Think warm towels. <laughs> yeah. Warm towels. Okay, so warm towels. And yeah. how, how do you use them 
in my mind right now, I'm just seeing something that obstructs my ability to get my hands on the patient yeah. and palpate. And yeah, listen. so you got to work with part of a cat at a time. Right. Okay. You got to learn that cats like to hide. Mm-hmm. So for the nervous cat, we'll make sure their head is covered by the towel. Right. Right. So sometimes you have to disrupt your normal physical exam order and you yes. have to say, and I know this is hard because like we like, you know, systems and process and be thorough, yep. but you have to be guided by the cat. And right. so you have whatever the cat likes the least, you have yes. to leave it to the end. Yep. Right. So you can't be the vet who says, you know, I examine every animal in this order every time. Yeah. Right. You're going to get injured. Well, you're going to get injured or you're not going to finish the exam. You're not going to get the information that you need. So in feline medicine, maybe this is true with dogs, the lesser species too. I don't know. But not uh, no no comment from the podcast. I I do own two dogs. Just saying, I do own two dogs. I've recently learned to admit that I own dogs. So I do I do own two dogs. But (laughs) do you own cats as well? Oh yeah. Well, Frank, Brian, and Meredith. Okay. Yeah, I show pictures of them all the time in my How lectures. How did you get their names? <laughs> uh, I love animals with, with human names. names. <laughs> the worst, that's the funniest, this is a well, funny story. but this can be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I've, what if they have the same name? Or sometimes I can't remember if Frank is like the owner's name or the cat's name. And oh. I, yeah, I've done that. My favorite cat was a, and this is a bit of a UK reference, so I'll, I'll explain it a little bit better. But it was a cat called Dave. And Dave, uh, I'm going to do an accent here. I'm going to butcher an accent. But in, in Essex, a county in England, yes. or in, they've got quite a distinctive accent. And you might have heard it if you've seen the show Made in Essex. Yes. Yeah. So it's about, oh, Dave, Dave. <laughs> and Dave's a bit of a, a geezer, so a, a likely lad, a Jack the Lad kind of yes. character, you know, cartoon, if you like. And so Dave had two white paws or all white all of his paws were white so he was a he was a tabby cat just with white white paws from the ankles so he looked like he had white socks which yeah. was kind of like a teddy boy kind of what oh, dive sort of essex <laughs> look so they called him dave and uh, i of course was mortified for my name as well <laughs> but i do love i do love a, a great human name for a yeah for a pet yeah yeah so i, I my staff named them yeah but i love so all I love rescue cats yeah they're all rescue cats we've always had at least one cat living in our clinics and we had one cat named Emil, yep. who I also talk about in lectures. We had him for like almost, I think, 14 years. We had him a long time. Yep. And when he died, so just bear with my digression here. Okay, no, no. When he died, our staff said, like, he's irreplaceable. Like, mm. we, we were... Gutted. Gutted. And they said, we, we can't, like, he's irreplaceable. So we went almost two years without a cat in the clinic. And then one day they came to me and said, okay, it's time. You know, we need a cat. So here's the hard part as a clinic owner. It has to be the right cat. It has to be like, you know, very cool about other cats. It can't bite clients. <laughs> you know, it can't like defecate in the waiting room. But really, it can't like tear things. It's got to be the right cat. And how do most people get cats? By accident. Yeah, right. so, cats so, choose us. Cats choose us. So, but this is a very particular situation. You have to have the right cat. So I pondered this for a while because I thought like the worst thing would be if we get a cat and then it's not the right cat and then we have to find, you know, it could go bad. There, there's risk. <laughs> there's risk. So I pondered for a while and I thought, I have the answer. We will audition. <laughs> we'll audition cats. <laughs> so Cat factor. We did. So we auditioned three Young male cats, like a yearish. I didn't want a kitten. Yes. But I want a young cat. Yes. So we auditioned three young male cats. Okay. And my plan was to audition them for a month. So they would come into the clinic and they would live in the clinic for a month. Yes. And the staff would, you know, evaluate them and then vote on them. And then our clients would give us feedback too, because they would see the cats. Okay. Well, I don't know. We were a week and a half in and it was, Frank was the winner. Frank was the winner. Frank. It was just obvious it was a good fit. It was obvious. something to be learned when we recruit team members (laughs) in that approach as well, I think. Audition. Yeah. So Frank was the winner and it was a happy story because, you know, we found homes for the The other other cats. Yeah. 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 So, I, I mean, I thought that was brilliant. No, that's, <laughs> I do. I love it. I love it. I thought um, it was brilliant. So, we're, we're kind of coming up on an hour, and I know you have to go away because you're very, very busy. I got to go talk WVC. about high blood pressure. Yeah. You got to talk about high blood pressure. I do. And I do not wish to raise your high pressure. So, I'm going to 
segue now into our short form questions because oh. I could I could ask you questions. This is really entertaining for me, and since I mostly do the podcast, so I can learn interesting things, and everybody else just gets to be a voyeur. Uh-huh. Um, then it's working for me. So okay there you go. then. So, so um, short form question: What is, are you most is this like Trivial Pursuit or something? Because I'm well, not they're your answers, so <laughs> okay. I don't. Like, there's not like mul- this is. It's not a multiple choice. Dr. Susan, this is not multiple choice in your life. It's like, Dr. Okay. Susan, yeah. what are you most proud of in your career and why? Is it A, okay. <laughs> it would be easier. telling white lies yeah, that's right. this would be <laughs> on more podcasts? Fun, actually. Is it B, auditioning cats? Yeah. Or is it right. C, writing books? books. <laughs> uh, I like that better. I like that better as well. But I, I really that. have to pay attention in the you podcast do. and be in, kind of you engaged. Would. You would, so, sadly. <laughs> this is meant to be the rapid fire section. Okay. So what are you most proud of in your career and why? What am I most proud of? I am most, actually I'm most proud of my colleagues in our profession. I have learned oh, that answer. we, no, I'm serious. We have an amazing profession. So I'm in a position where I often have to ask people, will you do this project with me? Will you write a book chapter? Will you know, you yes. do whatever. Yes. And they, people rarely say no. Yes. We have a generous profession. We, we have amazing people in our profession. Yes, we so do. So I'm just like proud to be a veterinarian. Seriously. Okay. In that case, what has been the thing that's made the biggest impact in your career and why? Well, just learning to be a cat vet. Learning to be making, a cat vet. Making that decision to be a, a cat vet. I mean, where would I be? You wouldn't be interviewing me if I was like a sheep vet, probably. It'd be unlikely, really. You know, because I, I wouldn't be a good sheep vet. No, if you weren't a good sheep vet, no. then... no. It's if all. you could tell a good story and we're... A, actually, if you're a, a half-assed sheep vet, you'd probably tell a lot of good stories, but we'd be very unveganly friendly. It would be. Yeah. So, so see, not. So there you go. So becoming a cat vet, very important. Or if you yep. could change... You could be a god of vet, a goddess of veterinary medicine. Can that be gender neutral? Can you just say a god of veterinary medicine? Probably can, though, can't you? I don't know. And you could change one thing in veterinary medicine. What would it be and why? What thing would I change in veterinary medicine? Oh, I, these are like, I hate these like big, because I always have like stupid answers. What would I change in veterinary medicine? I, you know, I would circle back to what you and I were talking about, as long as it doesn't get cut. <laughs> but it's about equipping new veterinarians better. Right. Right. Whether that be realistic expectations, whether that be making them understand there's many ways to be a veterinarian, you know, whatever it is. Better support and mentorship. Yeah, man. Something's wrong, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Something's wrong. Something's wrong and and we can fix it. Oh, I think it's fixable. But we need... We need to focus on it hard. But we need to focus on it, and we need a lot of people with different talents and different perspectives to focus on it. A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would it be? You know, this is a piece of advice that I give to the young vets who come and work in our practice, and that is, it's not about you. And what I mean is when that client is in front of you, and they're upset about something that's happened with their pet and they're screaming at you and like you feel like the worst veterinarian on earth, you know, and you feel about two inches high. You know what? Most of the time, it's not about you. A lot of the time, it's because that person's having a bad day. You know, they're running late. They're having an argument with their wife. Their mother's dying. And most of the time, what has happened between you and the client or what's happened with the pet is actually not that big and it's just been the straw that broke the camel's back and what you're getting is everything else and it's coming at you and the day I realized that was amazing the day I realized it's it's sometimes it is about you but most of the time it's not it's not yeah that's a that's a very profound insight well it was really helpful for me for mental health reasons you know to be able to walk away and say, because then you can divorce yourself a little bit and say, how do I solve this problem? The minute you get it out of your own, you know, hurt yep. and insecurity and say, okay, this is a problem that needs to be solved. Yep. You're going to be much better at it. Got it. Have you got any particular habits or things you do to manage your mental health, your state of mind? Exercise. Exercise. Oysters. Oysters. <laughs> and laughing a lot. Walk you laugh dogs. a lot. I noticed that. <laughs> Well, and walk the dogs. You, and walk the dogs. Yeah. Okay. You know, I've learned a lot from one of my dogs. Yeah. So one of my dogs is a rescue dog, and his name is Moo because he's black and white, and he's just like a little mutt. But Moo sleeps on my bed, and every morning 
he's only like a year old. So every morning he wakes up, he wakes me up and he goes, it's a new day. What are we going to do today? He has such joy every morning. Every morning is a brand new day and he's ready to grab it and run with it. Right. And so everybody needs Moo. It's not mojo. You need, you need Moo. You need a Moo. I love that. Yeah. Uh, that is one of the best things about dogs, isn't it? Yeah. Um, a favorite book that you've read recently that has really been impactful for you Ooh. or throughout your career? I read murder mysteries mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I read like British murder mysteries. What's your favorite murder mystery? Well, I don't know. I'm like sort of an Agatha Christie person. Although I like um, Ian Rankin. You know Ian Rankin. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, am yeah. a huge Ian Rankin fan. You're Anne, Rebus? Anne Cleves. Rebus. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And Cleves, like the Vera series. Yes. Yeah. If you like, Vera. if you like yeah. murder mysteries, my father's wife, my stepmom, if you will. Yeah. She, if you look up, the wrong kind of clouds. The wrong kind. Wrong of- kind of clouds. She publishes Scottish crime literature. No kidding. Mm. I will look. It yeah. Up. And you can get that on Amazon. So wrong kind of clouds. I will like look that, that up. I'm like addicted um, to like yeah. British murder mysteries. Let me, UK know, stuff. Let me know if you wrong like Wrong kind it. of clouds. Okay. Yep. Cool. Okay. So oh, last two questions then. So what's the most controversial thing people don't know about you, but matters? Ooh, I'm really an introvert. That's come across really, really loud and quietly. Isn't that right? No, it Are makes sense. Are you one of the extrovert introvert absolutely and so at the end of a day of a lot of intense contact which i enjoy i need to get away from it space i do so you don't always or you don't often see me at a lot of like the evening stuff i'll do a little bit of it but you won't because i need i need silence and i need to get away so there's that introvert that needs to be taken care of if you could send one tweet and the whole world could see it what would the tweet say? Just be kind. Be kind. It doesn't cost anything. And it might bring world peace. I don't know. <laughs> no, seriously, be kind. Be kind. You know, I've, I've become much more tolerant and kind. I used to be a f- really quite a judgmental person mm. when I was younger. It was just, when you're young, it's easy to be judgmental because yes. you don't know better. And then once life beats you up a little bit, then yes. you go, wow, like maybe that guy's like that because. So just learn to be kind, you know. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Susan, I could speak to you for hours. I know you've got to get away, so I'm I not going to hold you up any longer. Thank you so, so much for your time coming on the podcast. You're going to buy me oysters for this, right? Say again? You're going to buy me oysters for this. I have to buy you oysters for that. (laughs) You can't, like, I can't be, as a vegan, I can't go buy meat products. Can I buy you coffee with soy milk? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I I would buy you whatever. I'll buy you whatever. I'm super grateful for your time. This has been such an entertaining and engaging conversation. Um, So I'm grateful for that. I wish you well in all the endeavors you're doing. If people want to learn more and follow you, get in touch with you after the episode and tell you how wonderful a guest you were <laughs> or buy, you have two books you've, I you've do. offered, haven't you? I do. So if they want to get hold of or those Or just talk books, about oysters. We could do that. Or just talk about oysters. <laughs> Where do people find you? So on social media, at CatVetSusan. Everything. You'll find me. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. CatVetSusan. CatVetSusan. That's me. You go. You got it all kind of covered. Yeah. That's wonderful. And the book titles are, so editor co-author of The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, mm-hmm. and editor and co-author of Volume 7 mm. of the August Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Money well spent mm-hmm. on both. Where do they get the books? Oh, probably Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Susan, thank you for coming on and all the best. Um, hopefully we will get a chance to speak again soon. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. just me again before you head off i just wanted to say my massive thanks to susan little for joining me as my guest also to you guys for listening in Uh, i hope you're enjoying the podcast if you are please don't forget to leave a review and a rating on itunes it all helps to keep the show coming keep the guests interested in coming on and i'm very proud to say that we are getting scrapingly close to the 5,000 plays in a month So please keep listening, keep letting us know who you want to be on the show. And always, if you want to reach out to me with a question, then it's instagram.com forward slash Dr. Dave Nickel. Until next time, be safe, be happy, be well. Dr. Dave out.